Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and today we will be talking about a topic that I have been dying to talk about for ages, the works of author Neil Gaiman. I was joined by my very good friend and fellow nerd, Anthony Pingera, who is just delightful and I think you will really enjoy our discussion. The first thing I want to point out is, if you're listening to this episode within a day or two of release, Anthony is going to be on Jeopardy on Monday, October 14th, so make sure to watch that Jeopardy episode coming out on Monday. Hopefully there were some questions about Neil Gaiman on there, Alex Trebek. A huge thank you to our newest patron, Tina Daniels, and an even huger thank you to patron Michael Beck, who upped his pledge to the master patron level, which makes him the Mr. Wednesday, or at least the Ian McShane, of pairing. And thank you also, of course, to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, and Allison Turi, who all have delightful dark fae energy. And to our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, whom we love more than David Tennant. If you would like to join these magical people, come check us out at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you'll get access to all sorts of bonus content, personalized pairings, and more. We are sponsored this week by Wink, the only wine subscription service that I would give my endorsement to. I'll tell you all about it later on, but if you would like $22 off your first shipment of wine, go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast and find some awesome new juice today. Last but not least, I'm very excited to announce that you will be able to hear me on a new audio drama soon. The creators of Wolf 359 are at it again, this time with a seven-part series about the end, or ends, of the world. I think Neil Gaiman would enjoy it. That will be coming out remarkably soon, so make sure to follow Zero Hours at Zero Hours Podcast on Twitter to get all the news on that. I had so much fun recording for it, and I think everyone will really, really enjoy it, so check that out. And uh, and speaking of that, that is why this episode is coming out just ever so slightly late. I've been traveling a whole lot, and this intro is sounding a little bit weird because I am in yet another hotel room at yet another wedding in, this time, Lexington, Kentucky. Super fun, super exciting, but we're we're piecing things together as we can, so I apologize for the slightly inferior sound quality here. Without further ado, here is episode 48, The Works of Neil Gaiman, with Anthony Pingera. It's Pingera. Pingera! Whoa. Yeah. In my brain, it's been Pingera this whole time. Yeah, and you don't have to roll the R either, because um, it's Ger- it's German, believe it or what? not. What? Yeah. What? But I yeah. thought you were Italian. No, no, my family's what? from Austria. What? Yeah, it's Pingera. It's just... Pingera? Wow, wow. I am learning so much right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. Ari didn't talk about it on her episode, but Salzburg is the only place we've ever been where people know how to spell and pronounce my name right off the bat. I got there and I was like, so it's under Pingara, it's spelled, and they're like, yeah, 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 I know how it's spelled, don't worry about it. I, I feel like, okay. similarly, I feel similarly whenever I talk to anybody who's from Eastern Europe, because uh, mm-hmm. they're the only ones who see Jarko and can say Jarko, if, or anybody who speaks Russian is like, oh yeah, Jarko. So, right. But otherwise, it's it's like <laughs> Ziarko, Ziarko, and then and then just because the hyphen is there, it just confuses people. So even though sure is like one of the easiest things to pronounce, yeah. Like then the sure gets mispronounced, and people are like Shazarko, It's like okay, all right. It's all right. It's all right. You tried. You tried, you tried. All right, well, on that note, welcome to pairing um, my dear friend, Anthony Pingera, whose name I just learned how to pronounce after knowing for many, many years. <laughs> welcome, Anthony. Oh, also, another another lawyer uh, mm-hmm. on, the, on the podcast, Winston, will feel great about having some lawyer solidarity. Yes. And today we are going to talk about, because Anthony and I are kind of uh, soul siblings when it comes to <laughs> nerd culture. And uh, and so we're going to talk about possibly 
one of my, if not my favorite living authors, Neil Gaiman. Yes, I think definitely one of the best authors currently living. I am sad that he is spending so much time being a dutiful father and husband and not enough time writing profusely. I know. And also and also he's been doing a lot of TV stuff. Yes, he has, which I'm TV. sure we will wind up talking about. Yes, I believe we will because I have mixed feelings about the TV and film adaptations of Neil Gaiman's work, Agreed. most of which he has worked on. So, yeah. If not if if not sole the sole screenwriter, then he's What's the word? Uh, co-writing. Co-writing. Anyway, yes. So we'll get to we'll get to the film stuff soon. But so I think you know we could talk about probably any one of Neil Gaiman's books for at least an hour. Yeah. But I think we picked out a few that we wanted to focus on, mm-hmm. and those are American Gods, Good Omens, and Neverwhere. Yes. Which, yeah. Which I think Anthony, you and I both love neverwhere yes. i think that's i think that's my favorite I, it's you know what it's my favorite too um and american gods just so you know is ari's favorite book like oh really period, favorite book really i didn't yeah. know that about ari um yeah. yes listeners um in case in ca- for for a little bit of context anthony is the husband of ari levine who was our lovely guest on the sound of music episode and she and i have been uh, very, very good friends since college, and I'm starting to feel like I am a bad friend because I don't, I didn't know that was her favorite book, and I didn't know how to pronounce your name. So. It's okay. <laughs> you know, people people will go decades and not know how to pronounce my name because I just don't say it that often, and then yeah. when people say it, I'm like, oh, I've never said it in front of you. Okay, that right. makes sense. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes me feel better. Yeah. I never hold it against people when they can't pronounce my name because it's it's hard. Yeah, I you it. and I both have surprisingly difficult names uh, to pronounce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, so. not intuitive to English speakers. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, if it's okay with you, speaking of American Gods, I was thinking we could start off with American Gods. Sure. Because because that's the one that I can make the most wine connections with. Absolutely. So uh, I I really enjoy American Gods. I've I've read the book. I was doing some of the full cast audiobook that came out in 2011, mm. which is actually really really good. Ooh, uh, I very haven't listened long to that. Though. Is it is it unabridged? Yeah, it's the unabridged author's preferred <sighs> version, so it's like 12,000 words longer than the, the initial published version, which is already not short. Yeah. But it it's good and I think the voice acting is really strong. The voice acting they might have actually used Ian McShane. I don't know if that's true. Oh, really? But the at least the guy who does Mr. Wednesday really sounds like Ian McShane, and I'm sure we'll okay. talk about it in a bit, but Ian McShane was by far my favorite part of the American Gods TV show. So oh, absolutely. I was very happy to hear what sounded like his voice. I agree. And speaking of speaking of talking about the TV adaptations, <laughs> I love Ian McShane. He can do no wrong. He's fabulous as Mr. Wednesday. There's a lot about the American Gods TV show that I don't like and think is overall probably one of the weakest adaptations of a Neil Gaiman. I would Um, agree. Which is disappointing because he is working pretty uh, intently on it or intimately on it. Yeah. And... Um, and I don't know, there's just something about it because I guess I haven't read American Gods in like, I don't know, eight years or something, I think is when I read it. Um, but now I really want to listen to the the audiobook. Mm-hmm. But there's just something, I don't know. With all Neil Gaiman works, I feel like there's this beautiful mixture of like the macabre and the uh, kind of whimsical, mm-hmm. I guess. And he blends those two really, really beautifully. Um, and that's part of what makes him my favorite science fiction writer. Yeah. And I just feel like the show totally missed the whimsical part of it. And I mean, overall, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. Overall, I would say American Gods is one of his darker works in yeah. in general, just in tone. But there is still that element of kind of fun to it, even if it's kind of a dark humor Mm -hmm. um and i miss a lot of that in the show yeah 
I think it's also his most explicitly adult book. You know, yes. like the rest yeah. of his books are, I don't want to say all ages because that has a certain connotation, but the rest of his right. books, like you can really pick them up and read them as a young teenager and it's, you know, it's totally yeah. fine. And you can absolutely read American Gods. It's very readable if you're a young teen, but I think there's a lot in there. Like there's infidelity. There's a lot of, you know, explicit uh, sexual encounters, which is, you know, it's all fine, but it's definitely a more right. mature book for a more mature audience. Absolutely. And I also think that like, as a younger reader, you'd probably miss a lot mm-hmm. that because I think there is a lot of nuance to kind of the metaphor and of of American gods and this kind of tension between the old and the new. Yeah, that I think if I had read it in you know middle school or high school, I'm sure like I would have gotten it, but I think I would have missed a lot of the yeah. nuance. And I think. You you mentioned that Neil Gaiman blends the macabre and the whimsical, and I yeah. I thought about that too, and I think I like the same thing. And what I wrote down is he he's really good at conveying like a dark fae energy, and yeah. what I yeah. what I mean by that is like when I read Neil Gaiman, the passages that really stick out to me are the ones that give me the same feeling that you feel when you're like walking in the woods in October and you hear the wind whistle through the trees and it hits you just right or like you see the moon on a foggy night like it's it's that feeling that you might turn around and there's like a man with green eyes standing there waiting to make a deal with you you know like that's the kind of feeling that Neil Gaiman is so good at bringing out that I love and I think you're right that the TV show just doesn't have that it's just so And I think that's part of the weird thing about this book is it's the most American of all of his books. Like his other books are mm-hmm. so British. Yeah. And, not even British. They're so English. And American yes. Gods still has that English sense of humor, but it's so American in setting and in its tone and in what happens and in its sensibilities that if you yeah. take that British sense of humor out of it, all you're left with is this very American story and it doesn't quite feel like Neil Gaiman anymore. I think that's a really astute and succinct way to put it um Mm. that that kind of puts into words my very eloquently my problem with the show um so thank you and um this also leads me to my first kind of wine connection for this book Mm -hmm. um which the very obvious connection to make is that so all of american winemaking is basically based on european wine winemaking it's you know, the history is that they took European vines, brought them over to America, and now America as a as a winemaking culture is kind of trying to discover its own identity. Hmm. And which, you know, obviously places like California have figured that out a little bit more than other parts of the country so far. I mean, you like the Pacific Northwest. Uh, also makes really great wine, and New York makes some great wine. But the rest of the country is still kind of, like, every state makes wine. Mm -hmm. But I would say most of them are still trying to figure it out. And and so that just makes me think of this, uh, this kind of really beautiful tension in American gods between the old gods and the new gods, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, as I said, a lot, I think there's so much more nuance to it than yeah. one would one would think just from hearing like the synopsis of the book, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I I love that I love that things aren't kind of aren't really clear cut, in, right in in this book. Yeah, like the the old gods are you you're meant to sympathize with them because they're the ones who you're following, and the new gods right. are kind of set up as antagonistic. But at the same right. time, like the old gods represent these ideas that you know some of them it's probably better if they have fallen away like yeah you know do we do we need 16 war gods hopefully right. we wouldn't you know would we need a god of right. pestilence hopefully we wouldn't right. you know like chernabog is one of the big characters mm, and like mm-hmm. you know chernabog in folklore is a he's supposed to be a basically he's a death god and yeah. so you know it's probably for the best that he has declined in popularity and is sort of resigned to being a shadow of his former self. Totally. 
Totally. And so one one specific wine thing that I wanted to talk about, which I've mentioned on the podcast before, so I'm cheating a little bit, but <laughs> um, but it's just it feels so appropriate to talk about it with American Gods. Um, I wanted to talk about there's a grape in. Well, OK, I'm going to start with the, the first grape, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, there's a grape called Mission. Um mm-hmm because it was pretty much named because Spanish missionaries brought it over to the Americas. And so you'll see in California and in South America, um, this grape called Mission. And um, what I think is so cool is that in particularly Chile, but also Argentina a little bit, they have renamed this grape País, which Mm -hmm. in Spanish means country or land. Mm. And I just... I just love this. I feel like that's such a, I don't know how that happened or why that happened, but I love that. And I feel like that's sort of appropriate for American gods to kind of take something old and reclaim it and make it your own. Yeah. So that's the, that's thing number one. And then related to that, there is a grape in Argentina specifically called Torontes. It's a white grape. It's not, it's not my absolute favorite wine. It's cause it's very like aromatic. Uh, and perfumey, and mm. that's not my favorite. But that's not to say that there aren't good ones. <laughs> but that one is, they think, is a genetic cross of this great Pais, or or Mission, and Muscat of Alexandria, which is one oh. of the oldest grape varietals that we know of in the world that, like, you know, came from uh, originally Alexandria, so Egypt. Mm-hmm. I don't you know, millennia ago. Right. And so I just thought that that was super cool because I didn't know that until fairly recently that Torontes was this mix of those two. Um, and I thought that that, despite the fact that it's not my favorite grape, um, kind of metaphorically speaking, it would be a great wine to drink with American gods. Oh, absolutely. Particularly because you have those two characters, Mr. Ibis and Mr. Jackal, who are Egyptian gods who came to America. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's what they would be drinking. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. sure. Particularly because one of the things I when I was going back over American gods, one of the things I noticed was the the different characters drink location appropriate drinks. Like when he makes the deal with Mr. Wednesday, he drinks honey mead. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Mr. Wednesday even says something like, I hate honeymead. It's god awful. It tastes like pickles. <laughs> but you know what? It's what heroes drink. And I was just like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, this is also something that I talked about. I think I believe I talked about this in our Thor episode, so appropriately. Yes. Um, but the the history of mead is actually really interesting. And I learned the, I believe the welsh word for it and i don't know exactly how you would actually pronounce it because i can't pronounce welsh to save my life neither can most welsh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i know we have a couple of welsh listeners so uh please please let me know but apparently the word for mead in i think welsh is methaglin um Mm. which i decided sounds like a marvel villain and yeah. so, because I kept confusing Malekith with Methaglin oh, yeah. in the yeah, in that episode. That. Yeah. So yeah, I think I also think that Methaglin sounds like uh, a, a cool either new god or old god or something. Yeah. So Methaglin totally could have been Kate Blanchett and Thor Ragnarok. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. That yeah. would have been a better. I I kind of am upset. This is a sidebar, but I wish that they just kept her name as Hell because that is her actual name in the in the mythology. But they right. had to make it Hella. Right. Whatever. Yeah, because sure. Why not? Because sure, Sometimes not? you got to dress it up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she is Kate Blanchett. <laughs> what a treasure. <laughs> she is. Speaking of treasures, um, I also, my other favorite part of the American Gods show was mm-hmm. Gillian Anderson as media. Oh, and she was great. She was great. And I think she was like, by far, along with Ian McShane, the best part of the first season. Mm-hmm. And we stopped watching the second season after like the second episode because it was just getting too convoluted in a way that the book wasn't to me, yeah. or at least I don't remember it being. 
and also what they did with media and recasting her i didn't like it but yeah anyway and i think that my big problem with the show other than what i said before is that it's too slow like it's yeah. way too slow yeah and like the book isn't a fast-paced read even mm-hmm. by you know neil gaiman has this whole forward in the audiobook where he says like i set out to write a long sort of wandering story and i did yeah. But then you listen to the audiobook and you realize, like, they only get maybe 100 pages into the story in the first season of the show. Like, they yeah. only get to, like, the house on the rock, kind of. That's right. Yeah. And then, like, yeah, that's that's not even a quarter of the way through. That's so little. I think that they should have done more like what they did with Good Omens, like a like yes. a six-part miniseries or something. Absolutely. And I think that would have been perfect. Yeah. It really would have moved. Yeah, because I you're right, because the story just doesn't, like, yeah, the, the imagery is really cool, and, like, it's very visually compelling, but yeah. but the story is too slow and kind of convoluted because it's so slow, which, you know, is a, is a bummer, but that yeah. there's just opportunity for a better adaptation in the future. Absolutely, yeah. And did the show get canceled? I don't remember. I think it got renewed for a third season. Oh, okay. I sure. think it did. I'm not I'm not positive, but I think I think I heard that. We'll double check. Okay. Uh um my last little wine thing with American Gods. I think this is one that I've talked about before as well, but one of speaking of the American Northwest, there is a wine company in Washington called Corviday. As in the family of birds yeah. that are like, you know, ravens, crows, other other birds of that sort. And so obviously those are the wines that Mr. Wednesday would uh would oh, for sure. Would drink. Um, yeah. because For sure. In, not to give anything away, but uh ravens play a, a a big part in in the book. Yeah. The the only thing I would think that he would drink in addition to that would be one honeymead because he's got a and obviously. two obviously anything with a wolf in the name because Ooh, yeah. mythologically without spoiling too much yep. wolves yep. also feature into his his mythology yes. pretty heavily. Yes. Yeah. Um ooh. Okay, so I I know a few wines or I can think of a few wines that have wolves on the label mm-hmm. um, because, you know, part of being a sommelier is obviously knowing which wines have wolves on the label. Of course. Um, <laughs> of course. Uh, one one of my favorites was a, a special bottle that I coveted for a really long time and I eventually treated myself to. Um, but it's a bottle of Chablis. So from from Burgundy is a white Burgundy. Um, and the, the name of the winery even is Potsloo. Which oh. uh, or patlu, I think is how you would say it. But I think that which means the paws of the wolf. And there's a really beautiful painting of a wolf on it. So um, highly recommend that one if you ever want to treat yourself. Mm-hmm. There's also, oh yeah, I was drinking. I think during the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban episode, I was drinking a Chenin Blanc from South Africa mm-hmm. called the Painted Wolf. Ah, uh, which was also delicious and much less expensive. So if you <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to, uh, and I think they make other other wines there too, like red wines and stuff. Yeah, in, um, from that winery. So, uh, Painted Wolf, great, highly recommend. There you go. Also, before before we move on to to uh, one of the other books, I did want to give a shout out to the Anansi Boys, which is kind of the spinoff. Of American Gods, which has much more of the kind of whimsical characteristics that yes. we've been talking about while still being in this world. Yeah. And it also has one of my favorite lines that Neil Gaiman has ever written. And I could never pull it off in real life, but I always want to do this when I order coffee because this is how I take yeah. my coffee. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? I, I think I do. But Spider, uh, the first time you see Spider, you see him ordering coffee. And the woman at the cafe says, how do you take your coffee? And he just looks at her and goes, black as night, sweet as sin. And I was just like, (laughs) that's so cool. I could never pull that off. Oh, man. Like, if I did that, I would get arrested. Like, I could not ever pull that off. But but that's how I take my coffee, black with two sugars. So, like. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is that is hilarious. Um, please, if you do, if you do uh, ever ever do that, let us know how it goes. Okay. <laughs> I think I said it to Ari oh, once, and she amazing. just laughed at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah, I definitely couldn't. I definitely couldn't pull off ordering that. So, <laughs> no. I think you have to be way smoother than than we are. Just but... the supernaturally smooth as Spider is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, listeners, for context, in case you haven't read American Gods or Anansi Boys, Anansi is a, oh gosh, I'm going to forget what country he's a, a, a god in, um, but it is an African country. He is an Afro-Caribbean trickster god. He, ah. he might be Yoruba, but I d- do not quote me on that, and I, I don't want to just, like, co-sign that immediately. Yeah, no, okay, so it's... It, it, the internet, which, as we all know, is foolproof in its <laughs> information, uh, just says of West African descent. And okay. then I believe, uh, yeah, so Afro-Caribbean uh, kind of trickster god, as you said, and he is often represented as a spider, <laughs> and super cool. There's actually, um, uh, if I can plug another podcast real quick, Spirits does a great episode on Anansi, um, oh. Anansi the the god, not Anansi from Neil Gaiman. But I think props to Neil Gaiman for for bringing Anansi into kind of our, <laughs> if I may say, white Western uh, kind of sensibilities because i don't think i would have ever heard of a nazi otherwise so yeah and i think one of the things i gotta credit the show and the the book with but the show makes it explicit is like you know the protagonist is a non-white character and he you know he very easily could have just been like all of these western european gods and yeah there's a lot of them because neil gaiman loves norse mythology but there's also like a nazi is a big character in the series and you know shadow is biracial and like that's all really cool yes no i love i love that because because they don't make shadows uh ethnicity explicit in the book no they don't think um but i was really happy and i think that the actor whose name i can't remember right now who plays shadow does a very good job Mm -hmm. i think most of the actors do a good job i have no real complaints about the acting on the show i just think that the the writing and Oh, also Orlando Jones as Anansi is pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. All of the actors you could really call, like Pablo Schreiber as Mad Sweeney is yeah, so much yeah. fun to watch. So much fun. Like, it, so much fun. There's just so many good performances in service of a show that has structural problems. It's a lot like Game of Thrones season eight. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, pretty much, pretty much, yep. Except instead of trying to condense way too much into six episodes, they... Stretch it out. Expand, stretching it out. But similar, similar issues. Absolutely. All righty. Before we move on to the other macabre and whimsical works of Neil Gaiman, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor for this week, Wink. We are proud to partner with Wink because they are committed to helping you learn about wine through providing interesting and unique bottles at affordable prices. Part of what I love about working in the wine industry is discovering new wines and grape varietals, and I love that Wink provides so many options of unusual wines to try. In just glancing at their red wine selection right now, I saw that they have a Blaufrankisch, a Zweigelt, Valdegui, Nero d'Avila, Cabernet Franc, and Petite Syrah, all that I really want to try. And their palate quiz is so easy to take, and if you don't like your results, it's easy to add, subtract, or switch out the wines they choose for you. Not to mention, there's no monthly fee or obligation, so it's easy to skip a month's shipment or get multiple shipments. Also, for anyone who uses our code to sign up, I'll send you my personal favorite recommendations of Wink Wines that I love. And on top of my recommendations, Right now, Wink is offering listeners $22 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast. And it gets even better. I know you all hate paying for shipping. So do I. So does everybody. So Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast to get $22 off your first order now. That's T R Y 
W-I-N-C dot com slash pairing podcast. And now back to the show. Okay, cool. Let's go on to Good Omens because I think that that is probably the one that most people are now most familiar with because of the recent miniseries, mm-hmm. which on the other hand, I loved. That was great. They did I a thought really it was good so job. good. Yes. And um, and quick, quick shout out. Well, I don't know about shout out or just boast um, that I got to see David Tennant a few weeks ago in... Uh at Dragon Con and it was amazing. Oh, I'm so He's jealous. Amazing. Uh, I know. I I love David. I've been in love with David Tennant ever since he started playing the tenth doctor, which at this point oh, now yeah. is like twelve years ago. And uh, is legendary. Yeah. He's fabulous. I always love the fact that he's a Scottish actor who never gets to use his accent. Like I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So he was talking obviously with a Scottish accent because that is his native accent. Same thing with, uh, and we can talk about this uh, for Neverwhere, James McAvoy mm-hmm. almost never gets to talk with his Scottish accent. Yes. And it's so sexy, and I wish <laughs> that he would always talk with his Scottish accent. Anyway, anyway <laughs> I'm getting distracted here. Yeah. But um, but yes, David Tennant was you know, talking in his delightful Scottish accent, and uh, he's just such a, such a wonderful person. But... So I was confused because when they made the casting announcement that David Tennant and Michael Sheen were going to be Crowley and Aziraphale, mm-hmm. perfect casting yes. on both both uh, accounts. I had thought I had I saw something on the internet that they had dressed up as Crowley and Aziraphale for Halloween or something oh, really? like many years ago. It might not be real because David Tennant said that when he got cast, he had never read Good Omens. Oh. So it seems like unlikely. that was unlikely. It was one of those rare instances where the internet was not telling me the truth. The internet <laughs> was wrong. I know. No. I know. I know. I'm never trusting it again. But, but yes, so Good Omens, obviously, I mean, if, if you don't know, listeners, Good Omens was a collaboration between Neil Gaiman and the late, great Terry Pratchett, mm-hmm. um, who is the author of the Discworld series and like 40 other fabulous sci-fi kind of comedy, I would say. Yeah. Like, yeah, more much more heavy on, com- on the comic aspect in Terry Pratchett's books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I found out recently... Or, like, I knew this and then forgot it and then re-remembered. Neil Gaiman wasn't really famous when he did Good Omens. Like, Terry Pratchett had already been yeah. around for a while. But yeah. Neil Gaiman was, like, he was our age. He was 30 when he did Good Omens. Jesus. And oh, he was, like, just... Do- he was in the middle of doing Sandman at the time. Yeah. He, which, yeah. by the way, uh, please, internet, don't shred me for this. I've never read Sandman even though I love Neil Gaiman dearly, I've never read yeah. Sandman. I keep meaning to get to it, and then other stuff keeps getting in the way. I have. I'm. I'm not much better. I've read the first four, mm-hmm. um, and then I stopped because they're they're expensive. You know, they're like yeah. twenty bucks each, and they're totally totally worth it. But my brother told me that he's got the whole series in storage at our parents' house somewhere. Oh, and so I was like, oh, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy the rest of it. I'll just find his copies and read those. And I've tr- I've looked for them like so many times and I can't find them. Uh. So so one of these days I'm going to finish it. It is terrific and. I think they're also now making a Sandman adaptation officially. I maybe. think so. I, technically, the show Lucifer is like technically in the loosest way possible oh. a partial Sandman adaptation because it's an okay. adaptation of a spinoff. Gotcha, gotcha. I have not seen Lucifer, but now I. I am much more intrigued. But yeah, there, there have been. They've tried to make a Sandman series like so many times and it just has it hasn't worked out so we'll we'll see but yes highly recommend it but i also haven't read the whole thing so can't hold that against you anthony (laughs) um but (laughs) you have been forgiven yay yay but yes so good omens was this collaboration between terry pratchett and neil gaiman and um and so this obviously makes me think of my favorite wine collaboration which is going to be uh, very uh, appropriate, I think. But so there are these two winemakers, Charles Smith and Charles Beeler, 
and they have a collaboration that's called, wait for it, Charles and Charles. Uh, Charles and Charles. I always want to say Charles in charge. <laughs> Whenever. <laughs> Charles and Charles. And it's based, I think it's based in Washington as well, because Charles Smith is a Washington-based winemaker, and he is awesome. Uh, he looks like a biker rock star dude. Like, I think he does ride a motorcycle and he's got like long, like he looks like he belongs in Metallica. Speaking nice. of Sandman. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all, it all comes together. Yeah. And, uh, meanwhile, Charles Beeler is a French winemaker who I, I think mostly lives in America at this point, but he does make wine in, he makes rosé in Provence and, so I think that, uh, oh, and he's also, he was famous for a long time for driving a pink Cadillac. And I think that recently the pink Cadillac died. Oh, no. But I know. <laughs> R.I.P. pink Cadillac. Yeah. But, but so to me, I think that Charles Smith is very Crowley. Yes. And Charles Beeler is very Aziraphale. <laughs> and so, and that is obviously what is the most amazing part of Good Omens. Oh, yeah. Both the book and the the show yeah if if a zero did drive i feel like he there's a non-zero chance he would drive something like a pink cadillac oh yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. i mean i don't know what to say about good omens except that it's utterly delightful it is so charming it is so charming it is so clever and talking about being british or english like this this book is entirely british mm-hmm. and it's in its sense of humor and oh yeah um, and it's also a very English story, you know, it's very like the the end of the world taking place in like a small northern English town. Yeah. It's know? like, oh, it's, it's in Oxfordshire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's so perfect. It's so funny. And it it's it's just wonderful. And I think what what I find interesting is there's been interviews with the two of them, you know, obviously from a while mm. ago. And they said that everything that was basically Adam and his friends uh, was written by Terry Pratchett and everything that yes. was about the four horsemen and all of the like dark yeah. apocalyptic stuff was Gaiman and then they sort of edited each other's which makes sense because right. death in Good Omens is very similar to death in the Discworld novels where like yeah. he speaks oh, yeah. in unquote, uh, unquoted capital, capital letters at all times right. yeah he's right. got the wings of night he's just he's very similar to death in Discworld Absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But yes, I yeah, I wanted to touch on that too that I think, you know, technically they said, you know, word for word Terry Pratchett probably wrote more words for the book, mm-hmm. but they they both edited each other's work and so they both had their hands on every part of it, which yeah. I think is such a cool collaboration and I can't think of many other novels where that kind of collaboration happens. Yeah. It just doesn't happen very often that, like, people will write... Like, it happens every once in a while, but it always feels a bit like... Like, you know, in theater, they have stunt casting. It feels a little bit like, oh, this celebrity is on this book. Like, when um, James Patterson and Bill Clinton supposedly wrote a mystery together... But right, I'm sure that right, was like 95% right. James Patterson. Yeah, 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 exactly. Things like that are kind of the closest. But yeah, it 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 is just such a delightful, such a delightful book. And yeah, and I don't I don't have much else to say about it. I think except that it's so delightful. And um and as are the wines of Charles Smith and Charles Beeler. So I think it's a perfect perfect pairing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do Neverwhere. Let's get on to Neverwhere because it's our favorites. Oh, I love Neverwhere so much. Yes. And so because, okay, so I mentioned James McAvoy earlier um, and I got distracted. But then, so the reason why I mentioned him in terms of Neverwhere is because he plays um, Richard mm-hmm. in in the, con- it's, it's abridged, the kind of. The BBC radio play. Yes, the BBC radio play of, of Neverwhere, which absolutely listen to that if you don't if you if you can't you know either listen to the full audiobook of neverwhere or read it listen to the to the radio play because it is so delightful and um natalie dormer natalie uh, Dor- it is a 
star-studded cast. It is insane. It yeah. is insane. How, Islington is Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, like the 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 king of no the earl is um Christopher Lee. Yeah, the it's of uh, Anthony Head is Mr. Croup. And that's right. Yeah, that's it's right. it's a bananas cast. I don't know how they got them all to agree to do that. I don't know because it was it would they also made it like a a little while ago like 2013. It was... Yeah, when like yeah. all of those yeah. people were famous. You know, it wasn't right. like before right. Natalie Dormer blew up. Like she was in the middle no. of Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. Yeah, and she had done um the Tudors as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah, and James McAvoy like. He has had one of the consistently best careers or, like, very strong careers, I feel like. Yeah, he's always good. Yeah, and he, I mean, not every movie he's made has been great, but it's not because of him. Right, exactly. He's always doing the work. He's always, exactly. He's always putting the time in. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so, Anthony, why don't you you explain maybe the premise of Neverwhere? Because I think that this is the one that people are the least likely to be familiar with. Sure. So Neverwhere, in a nutshell, and it's a little bit hard to wrap your hands around in an elevator pitch, but it follows yeah. this man named Richard Mayhew. Um, he is a Scotsman living in London, living sort of the the everyday man's uh, supposedly perfect existence. Like he has a good job in mm-hmm. the city of London. He has a longtime girlfriend who is insisting that he propose soon. She uh-huh. is herself very well connected. He has a nice apartment, um, but he is also secretly profoundly unhappy. Yep. And one day uh, he stumbles upon someone in the street who is uh, in desperate need of some assistance. They are bloody and bleeding in the street. And against the protestations of his girlfriend, because they're going to a dinner date, he takes this woman back to his apartment just to, like, give her a place to go. And in doing so, he erases himself from the upper world and brings himself into the underworld of London, or as they call it, London Below. That's right. Um, the secret network underneath of magic and old world mystery under existing in the catacombs underneath London. Uh, it's really interesting because not only is it a beautiful story that is like deeply dark and macabre mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and has just such a wonderful sense of magic, but it is also a really trenchant social commentary about the things we miss when we ignore the people who need our help. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. To me, um, it kind of feels like Alice in Wonderland meets The Matrix. Um, <laughs> a little bit yeah a little it, bit and what i think is interesting is like you don't have to be like woken up to the matrix though you just right. have to like be a good person and not yes. ignore the person asking you for help on the street because all of the people in london below are what people in london above or the world we live in every day would consider to just be vagrants exactly yeah no and i remember so i i i've only read the book I think I've read it twice, actually, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't read it since, I think, early college. I think I reread it like my freshman year of college, um, but it still is so vivid in my in my mind, and it stands out to me as one of my absolute favorite books. Yeah. And something that's interesting that I didn't realize, and I don't know if you realize this, Anthony, but apparently this was a show first. Yes. Which I had no idea. It doesn't read like it. No, and so it's kind of the opposite of of the other Neil Gaiman books, yeah. Because unusually, it started as as a I think on BBC miniseries or something. Yeah, it was a BBC miniseries in 1996 with Pete Capaldi playing Islington. What? Yeah, it's a young Pete Capaldi. I, oh I have not gosh. watched it. Apparently, that is the best part of it. Okay, it's yeah. It's interesting that people because it's like you know the mid 90s on British television before people realized like you could make a fantasy show good um or like if you just put money into it it will be good uh so i have heard not great things about it but yeah then the novelization came out and it's just Mm -hmm. and this is his first solo novel yeah i did not i it took him until he was like 37 to publish a solo novel Really? Okay, so so when when was it published for the first time? Was it, uh, it was like two ninety six? 
It was published like right after the show aired. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Wow. Okay, cool. And then Good Omens. Good Omens was 1990. Was nine. Oh, it was that. Yeah. It was that long ago. Oh, wow. And they started working on it in 88. So like it's, yeah, that's, it's a while ago. Wow. That's, that is impressive. But yes, I love, I, I just, there really is something about Neverwhere that really to me is the most classic Neil Gaiman. Yes. You know, and, and I feel like if you, if you want to experience Neil Gaiman in his purest form, <laughs> yeah, I would go, I would, I would read Neverwhere. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. It's dark. It's funny. It's sweet. And it, it does feel kind of like an adult fairy tale in, mm-hmm. in many ways, or, you know, and a, or a modern fairy tale in, in many ways. Yeah. And, um, and so I was thinking about, uh, this is the hardest one for me to pair wine with because there was nothing like thematically or anything like that that just popped out to me as like s- something I could make a wine connection with. Mm-hmm. But what I thought of were things that uh, like wines that are somehow slightly unusual. Mm-hmm. So um, the one that really came to mind first and I think is a great wine for Neil Gaiman in general is Lambrusco. Mm-hmm. Um, Lambrusco is a sparkling red wine that you often, or you should serve chilled. Um, so it's like a chilled sparkling red wine, which is so anti, like antithetical to what you think red, either red wine or sparkling wine would be. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's, but it works. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that you know, talking about, again, that, like, blending of the macabre and the whimsical, you know, like, a dark, deep red wine that is sparkling. Yeah. Like, to me, that's um, that's kind of the perfect encapsulation of Neil Gaiman in, in wine form. Yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and so I think that that one, that one is a great one for Neverwhere, uh, as well as a couple other kind of more unusual wines. Uh, I was thinking about orange wine, which is white wine made like red wine so it's when i've been i've been seeing that on menus more and more in like only the last year it's been getting so popular and it and it's very like niche and hipster as Mm -hmm. well um and so so if you go into a wine store in brooklyn these days they're bound to have like a bunch of orange wine which is just funny to me but um but yeah but orange wine it is really cool and it's really interesting and it's basically um it's kind of the opposite of rosé so rosé is red grapes made like a white wine and orange wine is white grapes made like a red wine so so they're white grapes that sit on their skins for a really really long time and it gives them that darker kind of orange tint to them Mm. so i think that orange wine could be another cool one for for neverwhere as well and then there's there's just like some other cool funky wines that undergo like weird processes like there's this one process called carbonic maceration that I love I just love to say that um, but it's where it's where the primary fermentation actually happens within the grape itself mm. and then you press the grape and then it has another fermentation it actually gives it like a kind of very juicy kind of fruity quality and the regions most famous for that are actually Rioja in Spain. They don't mm. do it. They don't do it like that very much anymore. But apparently, that is like the traditional way to make Rioja, and um, most famous for Gamay and Beaujolais. Mm. Um, and I think that Beaujolais is another good one. I love Beaujolais, and so yeah. I think Beaujolais is a good one for for Neverwhere. So yeah, so those are those were some ideas that I had. Those aren't like those are just kind of like you know emotional connections that i have to to this book yeah i think a, i think a sparkling wine for a modern fairy tale actually sounds like a really good idea because right? it, it emphasizes that like it's it's still meant at the end of the day to be light yes it is it's still meant to be fun and uh you know you don't have to take it so seriously but at the same time it's like you feel you feel the 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 danger and the darkness in this book very yeah much. I think I think that's one of the things I love about Neil Gaiman in general, and I think it's best uh, shown in Neverwhere, which is mm-hmm. I was thinking about the magic that happens in Neil Gaiman books, particularly in Neverwhere. Like, Good Omens and American Gods are a little bit different because most of yeah. what happens there is, like, divine power. 
So that's like very yes. different. Right. Neil Gaiman, it's it's not like Harry like Harry Potter is like system magic. You know, where mm-hmm. like the magic has rules, you have a focus point in your wand, you tap into it with certain phrases for a split second right. and it's done. But right. in in Gaiman books, particularly in Neverwhere, magic just sort of suffuses the whole world and not everyone is magical, but yeah. the beings that have access to magic or are magical are very, usually very old and mm. almost always dangerous and inexplicable. You know, yes. like you don't, you're not meant to know how they work. You're just meant to understand enough to be afraid of them. You know, like right. Krupp and Vandemar, you don't know why they're effectively immortal, but they are Right. And like the things that they do just are so like creepy and other that mm-hmm. like and so you know there is magic to them. You just don't really know how it works. Same thing with like the the marquee and some of his abilities yes. or the Knights Bridge is a really good example uh-huh, of when they uh-huh. cross the Knights Bridge and it's like you don't know how the Knights Bridge works and there are plenty of authors out there who would be like, "Well, I have a magic system, so I'm going to explain to you in the magic system how right. it works." This is just like you do not know there is stuff here you don't understand and if you're not careful it will kill you and that's one of the things that i like about neverwhere me too i really like that i really like that kind of nebulous not really knowing how the magic works um i i know that that might bother some people cuz some people are very like systems based but if you can just let go and accept that you know yeah. there's magic and we don't understand it in this in this one yeah, I love I love that. Yeah, I think I think we've given a, a pretty good pitch yeah. for for Neverwhere. Yeah. Um, In summation, read Neverwhere. There are three ways you can consume Neverwhere. Yes, two of yes. which I can actively recommend. Yes. <laughs> you can watch Absolutely. it. You can listen to it. You can read it. You could. I definitely recommend reading it and listening to it. Yes, I recommend what I would recommend. Um, I in an ideal world, I would recommend actually reading the book. And then listening to the radio play yes. of it. Yes. Um, you can so. also, I believe that Neil Gaiman himself recorded the the full audiobook of of Neverwhere. Oh. I think I think you can get that on on Audible or whatever where wherever you get your audiobooks. And not every author is a good audiobook reader, but yes. Neil Gaiman has a great voice, and so he like, does. listening to him, I would listen to him read the phone book. Yeah, me too. Yeah, he's he's fabulous. And just just real quick, just because we've touched on most of his other works, um, even if we haven't like delved into them, I did want to just quickly shout out Stardust, mm-hmm. which very much is a fairy tale and is kind of his it's like it's his princess bride kind of. It's it's the one of his major works I have not read. I highly recommend reading it, and it's another one where I also really like the ad- the the movie of it with Oh my gosh, Claire Danes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Robert Michelle De Niro, Pfeiffer, Robert De Niro. Oh my God, what's his name? Who plays Daredevil? Oh, Charlie. Ben Affleck. Oh no, no, new, uh, new ben, no, the new, the new Daredevil. The new Daredevil. Daredevil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. I totally forgot that Ben Affleck played Daredevil. Oh man. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, but oh my gosh, what is his name? Charlie something. I I don't know. I shamefully have I not think... watched daredevil the new one i've seen i've seen just the i think the first two seasons i think i i'm i there's still and i have mixed feelings about about daredevil the show but i think he's pretty good why can't i remember his name i think this has happened to me before on this podcast where i've been trying to remember his name charlie cox there charlie we go. cox okay charlie cox that's his yeah. name. And he. this was sort of the first thing he ever did on a big scale. And he's very charming and delightful in it. Oh, um, also, oh, God, what's his name who plays Superman? Henry Cavill is in it. I'm glad you took briefly. that one because I was about to say Brandon Routh. Clearly my yeah, references I know, I know. are like a generation <laughs> behind. I know. <laughs> well, um, I, I like Brandon, Brandon Routh better than Henry Cavill as Superman personally. Nothing yeah. against Henry Cavill. It's more, it's more the movies themselves. I like. You don't like an aggressively dour Superman? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. That's yeah, fair. That's not my, not my, not my fave. But, uh, but yeah. Um, so anyway, Stardust is delightful. And, and I would say, you know, like if, if American Gods is much more of the dark of Neil Gaiman, 
Stardust is much more of the whimsical and light. It doesn't have a lot of, I mean, it's got some dark humor in it, definitely, but it's all very fun and it's more of a children's quote unquote or young adult book, I would say, than his other works. Yeah. So, but it is, it is also delightful. And, oh, and don't forget the graveyard book. Oh, yes, which I haven't read. Oh, I read that in a day. It's so good. And it's definitely yes. like a children's slash young adult book, but oh mm-hmm. man, it, it's his retelling of the jungle book and it takes place in a graveyard. Oh my God. Yeah, it's okay, so great. Go and that, uh, like, Bagheera, right the Bagheera character is a vampire. And oh my it's, God. Yeah, it's so, it's like everything you love about Neil Gaiman condensed so that you can read it in three hours. It's so, Fabulous. so good. I also have, but haven't read yet, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. That has probably the most heartbreaking line in all of Neil Gaiman for me, which is a father is yelling at his son and his son is like 12 and his son just looks at him and he goes, does it make you feel big making other people feel small? And I was just like, oh, no. Oh, you got me. so good. Oh, and and that also reminds me, he also wrote Coraline. He did write Coraline, yeah. Yes, which I didn't didn't read, but saw the the. It was a movie, right? Yeah, yeah it was like it was a, a stop motion or yeah, like yeah, fake stop. You know that fake stop motion. That yeah, whatever, whatever that that kind of animation is now. Yeah, and he did the the animated Robert Zemeckis Beowulf that came out like ten years ago. That was oh he my wrote the script. God, he wrote is, the script. For yeah, that. which is bananas <laughs> to me because you had mentioned earlier mixed feelings about his film adaptations. That's yeah. one that I'm like. I don't know that you really hit the mark there, Neil. Yeah, that Uh, was not the best movie. (laughs) No, because I I love me Beowulf. uh, Yeah. And that was not Beowulf. Nope. Nope. It was, was, that was the one with Angelina Jolie. Angelina Jolie and her built-in high heel monster feet? Yes. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, how could you not love that? (laughs) Yeah, that was really weird. That was like a really weird experimental. I feel like that was right after like 300 came out. And, yeah. And it, it almost felt time. like they were trying to do some of the stuff that 300 did, which also have problems with 300. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, it was weird. Yeah. So long story short, um, Neil Gaiman, not everything he does is perfect, but when he does well, he's so good yes when he nails it he really nails it he really nails it yes and i would say his his novels and his books without fail are always uh entertaining if at the very least if not like profound and deeply moving which many of them are his film work is a little shaky in places in places but yeah but good omens is perfect and that made me happy because I was so worried because yeah. of American Gods. Yes, it is totally um, ver- is spot on. And yeah. if you haven't seen it yet, please go see it. it is yeah, great. go. It's worth you know get yourself a, a you know succumb to the to the capitalist uh, mecca or uh, this is very appropriate to American Gods. Actually, I feel yes. like Jeff Bezos is like one of the um, American Gods. Yeah, I could see Jeff Bezos saying most of the technical boys lines. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it's worth it, you know, to 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 get prime, like get your prime trial just to watch Good Omens. It's worth mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, Anthony, thank you so much. Absolutely. I have so much fun. Yeah. Um. And so I know that you feel free to uh not plug anything, but I know that you do have a few things that you do in LA. I um, do. I don't know if you want um, to plug that. So I am at Anthono on Instagram, A-N-T-H-O-H-N-O. I do stand up occasionally. I think the next big yeah. thing that's coming up is the, uh, I was on an episode of Jeopardy that is airing October yes. 14th. Oh my God. It is possible that, this episode might come out right around then. Wonderful. Watch it if you want to see me do some things and win some amount of money. Yay! Yay! Yay. Yeah, Yeah, wait, I want to talk to you about that because at at some point... I can talk for a long time about what that experience was like. Okay, well, I... 
very much look forward to hearing about that. Perhaps we will not record it for our... Uh... <laughs> well, your your listeners don't want to hear four hours of me going over flashcards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's a podcast in and of itself, preparing for Jeopardy. Yeah, well, there's uh, there's some Jeopardy champions who have done podcasts about Jeopardy strategy, oh, I, which I have listened I to it. in preparing for Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it all comes together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anthony, thank you so much. I look forward to sharing a bottle of Lambrusco with you while watching or listening to some Neil Gaiman. That uh, sounds in lovely. In the future. Yay! Yeah. Thank Yay. you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Sherjarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. <laughs>